This is Andrew Whitaker, recording from the Lewis Library Studio on the MIT campus. It's October 26, 2018, and last night we had the pleasure of hosting our own Sasha Costanza Chalk for their talk on a research project called More Than Code. You'll hear more from them in a second, but just a reminder of other upcoming events. If you're interested in our graduate program in comparative media studies, next week is the time to be here. On Thursday, we have our annual grad program information session, followed by an evening panel with two alums sharing their experiences before, during, and after the program. Full info on those are at cmsw.mit.edu. Then our big event of the semester is Thursday, November 8th, with DC Comics writer Brian Michael Bendis. He's still relatively new to DC after years with Marvel, where he wrote for Iron Man, Jessica Jones, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Men, and more. And around these parts, he's most loved for creating Riri Williams, a character that went to MIT and hacked together her own Iron Man suit with stuff she grabbed around campus. And last, a reminder that the call for papers for our Media and Transition Conference is open. Deadline for submissions is February 1st. Just Google Media and Transition Conference for details. Now, here's the talk with Sasha. started, I'd like to welcome you all, many of whom I don't know, but I would like to, uh, to the uh, Comparative Media Studies Colloquium for the week, um, featuring Professor Sasha Kostanzichok. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, giving you credentials because I, I think you will prove that in the process of your presentation, except to say, check out the book, um, let me make sure I say it right, I'm going to blow it, out in the streets. Out of the shadows, out into, of the the shadows streets. into the streets. Yeah. Uh, and stay tuned for a second book coming out. So Summer okay. 2019. In 2019. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. That's but fast in academic terms. So. Yeah. All right. Um, so welcome, everyone. Um, thanks for coming. Um, hello. Welcome, new person who entered just as I began. Um, <clears throat> I'm excited to talk about this work. I'm actually not going to. I'm not going to talk that much about my, um, my upcoming book, which is uh, tentatively titled Design Justice. Um, but I am going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the research that informs um, one of the chapters of that book, which is about accountability in uh, technology uh, for good or technology for social justice. Um, what I'm going to talk about instead is this report called More Than Code. Um, and I'll give you an overview of what the report is, how it was produced, um, I'll go into the methodology a little bit, and then we'll, um, we'll actually pause in the middle of the talk to let you jump into an interactive uh, quotes browser tool that we developed. Um, and then I'll share some of the recommendations that we had from the research. And then we'll end with a Q&A. Um, so that's what's on the agenda for today. So digital technology provides extremely powerful tools for social transformation. Government agencies use digital tools to make services more accessible and to increase transparency. Journalists and media organizations are using digital tools to better meet society's critical information needs. Nonprofit and community-based organizations have been using digital technology to advance their missions and better serve their communities. Social movements use digital tools to gather and mobilize supporters, raise funds, tell their own stories, hold powerful actors accountable for their actions, and change society. But the, you know, the, the very optimistic view of digital tools as a method for uh, social transformation, the, the cyber optimistic and cyber libertarian dreams of the late 1990s, uh, we know have been uh, highly moderated 
of late. Because digital technologies are also often used to harm people. There's greatly increased attention to that lately. Uh, the ways that technology design, development, and deployment often reproduces existing forms of inequality. For example, there's a growing conversation about persistent gender and racial disparity in Silicon Valley. The use of big data across many areas of life has civil rights implications. So uh, you, know, you could think of Virginia Eubanks' uh, book on automating inequality or Safiya Noble's work uh, on algorithms of oppression. We could think about the investigative reporting by ProPublica that exposed algorithmic bias in predictive sentencing software, um, and so on and so forth. We could also think about Department of Homeland Security requests for software companies to help develop so-called good immigrant, bad immigrant sorting software, uh, which is feeding the current debate about the ethical responsibility of technology developers. And we could think about the um, no tech for ICE um, hashtag, the protests against Microsoft, against Amazon, against Palantir um, for building tools that can be used uh, to separate children from their uh, parents and so on and so forth. Um, we could think about um, the Google workers who organized successfully to stop Google from taking uh, the Project Maven uh, Department of Defense contract to um, build uh, semi-automated tools for drone warfare. Um, so we could also think about the ways that social media has become a terrain riddled with trolls, botnets, clickbait, disinformation campaigns. Uh, and some of these are operating with political objectives, others for profit, some for both, and some just for the lulls, right? So this conversation that we're having about the potential benefits and harms of technology is really important. But often it's a conversation that doesn't include uh, the voices of some of the most important actors in, in this in this space, which is technology practitioners who work and have worked, many of them for many years, for decades, or for their entire careers, and some of them who are just getting into it, uh, to advance social justice, the common good, and or the public interest. People frame this in different ways, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But across the United States, and of course around the world, but this talk focuses on US, um, thousands of software developers, designers, project managers, as well as researchers, policy advocates, community organizers, city officials, and people in many other roles are working on technology projects that are explicitly supposed to be about uh, developing the public interest, uh, civic life, social justice, and people frame this in different ways. So the project that I'm about to present, More Than Code, is a research, a participatory research project which aims to make the voices of these diverse practitioners working in this broader ecosystem heard. And our goals were, one, to explore the current ecosystem, two, expand understanding of practitioner demographics, three, develop and share knowledge of practitioner experiences, four, capture practitioner visions and values, and five, document stories of success and failure. And we focus primarily on practitioners working in the United States, and we end the report with a set of key recommendations that we'll look at uh, when we get there. So that's a little bit of a, a context for the project. Um, if you want to find these slides, they're available at this bit.ly, more than code-cmsw. And my Twitter handle is shock, for those of you who are tweeting about the talk. So what is More Than Code? More Than Code is a participatory action research project uh, with nine coordinating and partner organizations. We worked together over a period of two years to develop the research questions, our study design, 
to collect the data and analyze it together, and to develop our conclusions and our recommendations. We interviewed 109 people across the US. We conducted 11 focus groups with 79 participants. And all told, a total of 188 individuals participated in the study. We sought diverse participants in terms of gender identity, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, educational background, the sector that people were working in, so government, nonprofit, uh, technology cooperatives, uh, social movements. We sought diverse geographic representation, so urban and rural locations and other factors. We did focus primarily on practitioners in the United States. And there are much more detailed uh, participant demographics in the main body of the report, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of them here. We also collected and analyzed secondary data, including a database of 732 organizations and projects that work on public interest technology, tech, tech for social justice, and so on and so forth. Um, we scraped IRS Form 990 data. Form 990 is um, uh, nonprofit organizations have to file uh, tax information with the federal government. Um, it's called Form 990. And in Form 990, they have to talk about their mission statements. And so we also ended up scraping over 40,000 relevant nonprofits um, who, somewhere in their mission, are working um, on the types of projects that were identified by, um, by our study participants. And I'll talk more about how we did that in a moment. We also developed a database of over 14,000 job listings. And we assembled a spreadsheet of 350 educational programs and networks uh, that are, um, some of them informal educational institutions, and some of them are like coding boot camps and that type of thing, um, who are training people to do work in this type of space. And in the appendix of the full report, you can find links to um, all of the data sets that we assembled, as well as uh, de detailed methodologies, including you know, semi-structured interview um, uh, guidelines and other tools that we used uh, over the last couple of years. Um, so when I, say, when I say we, this is who was involved in producing this work together. So it was funded by the NetGain Partnership, which is a, a funder collaborative that includes um, the Knight Foundation, Mozilla, um, Ford, Open Society, um, and there, there might be one more, but I think that's most of them. Um, Code for America was involved. And then the project was coordinated by the Open Technology Institute and Research Action Design. And then the participating organizations, so when I say this is PAR, or participatory action research, what we did in the early stages of the project was we gathered together a group of practitioners who are working in this space, coming from different uh, locations and using different approaches uh, to develop our research questions and our methods and do data collection together. And these are the organizations that participated with us. So um, Hack the Hood. Um, Upturn, The Engine Room, May 1st People Link, Palante Technology Cooperative, Media Mobilizing Project in Philly, uh, Volpine Blue, um, and Coworker.org. Um, so again, I don't, I don't have time to talk about what each of these organizations do, but you can certainly, I encourage you to go look at their websites, read about their missions, and there are links to them um, from this project's uh, site. But so these are all organizations that are working on public interest tech community technology, tech for social justice, social movement technology. They have different ways that they talk about this, but they're, they're working in this ecosystem. And so our first goal was to try and define and take inventory of this broad field. Um, you know, what is, what is this space? What are the terms people use to talk about it? Um, you know, what does that look like? 
And so the first thing we found was that people use a lot of different terms for this type of work. Although funders control the frame. So one of the things that's going on is there's a big push largely by the Ford Foundation to uh, develop a uh, framework called public interest technology. And it's largely modeled on the public interest law field. Um, and the idea is that if we have a one coherent frame, um, we can more easily uh, develop a pipeline of people and resources and education that's oriented towards helping people use tech skills uh, for, for the public interest. Um, but what we found when we talked to these 188 people who are already practitioners in the field um, at different stages in their careers, at this point, only about 20% of them identify with the idea of being a public interest technologist. And many of them have other terms that they identify with, and many of them don't want an umbrella term. They feel like it's useful for there to be differences between, say, social movement technology or community-based technology and public interest tech um, or any of the other terms that people might use. And people are worried about the idea of a funder-driven frame shift that collapses all of these different terms, partly because these different terms carry different values. So data for good uh, is a frame that's much more open than, say, uh, community-led technology. And people who are doing community-led technology feel like it's important um, to clearly articulate uh, the values that are behind the work that they're doing and, and so on and so forth. So people gave us a lot of reasons why they didn't want one umbrella term to rule them all. They wanted um, to build and develop on the communities that they've already been, been working with. In addition, we found that about half of the people uh, in the study didn't identify as technologists. And that was one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't like the public interest technologist frame. So for example, people who said, you know, well, I was first a community organizer, and my organization didn't really know how to, I don't know, set up our website and didn't know how to build the database and didn't know how to do X, Y, and Z. So I learned how to do those things. And now I support people across my city and across my social movement to do those type of things. They identify as a community organizer first, not as a technologist. And they felt like technologist was a frame that would be um, exclusive, especially if people who historically have been marginalized from STEM and from technology as a field. So uh, women and femmes, people of color, gender nonconforming people, um, folks who have often been pushed out of and excluded from um, technology spaces um, don't necessarily identify as technologists first. And so they think that it's dangerous um, to use public interest technologist as a master frame um, to organize this work. We also found that much of this work is conducted by volunteers and by informal, um, by informal networks. So um, when we asked people about the terms that they did use to, to, um, to talk about the work that they do, our participants gave us over 252 terms to describe the work they do. Um, and we have a list of the terms that they came up with, uh, which you can find a link to in the main, um, in the main study. Um, 96 of the study participants, we gave them a term worksheet uh, which was populated by the first round of research. So during the first year, we conducted 20 uh, first round interviews and a number of focus groups. From those, we, we transcribed everything. We extracted the terms people used to talk about the work they do. And then we had a terms worksheet that the other participants um, filled out. And so um, of those 250 plus terms, we grouped them into top level categories. Um, and this is what we found. Um, um, people could identify as many as they want that they identify with. I don't know if you can see this in the back, so I'll just highlight a couple of them. So 131 of the participants um, fit in this big bucket of access, digital divide, and digital literacy. 
So that's how they think about the work that they're doing. Um, the next most popular was open source and creative commons. So a lot of people are doing free software, are doing open source, um, and are doing um, sort of freedom of information stuff. Um, the next most popular category was policy, so people working on internet freedom, net neutrality, um, uh, broadband access at the city level, and so on and so forth. Um, and you kind of go on down the list. And what's sort of interesting here is that you'll see of all these participants, only 18 of them identified with the field of public interest tech. Um, we also asked them which terms they really didn't like or didn't identify with. And um, there's a lot of, well, not a lot, but about 20 of them didn't identify as being part of movement or organizing or activist tech. Um, they weren't all involved in free software. And actually, it doesn't show up here, but in this other category, almost all of these um, are smart cities. So there was a couple people who said, well, I work on smart cities, and I see that as being something that's in the public interest and for good. But there were a lot of people who felt really strongly um, that smart cities was not a term that, um, that they identified with or that captured uh, the, type of the, the type of thing that they wanted to be doing um, to use tech for good. So we took those 252 terms, and we built a scraper for the IRS Form 990 data. And so then that database of uh, 39,177 organizations that are working uh, on one of these, are working in this space, in this ecosystem, is based on that terms list. So if the organization has in its mission statement one of those terms that was identified by the practitioners, um, they then appear uh, in this database. And these are sorted again by the um, most popular of the top level uh, categories for how people think about using tech for social good, right? And so the most popular one was nonprofit technology, perhaps unsurprisingly, since this is Form 990 data from nonprofits. Um, after that is open data and transparency, and so on and so forth. It goes down, down the list. And um, civic tech, which is a term that we use a lot here um, at MIT, partly because of the Center for Civic Media and because of other initiatives, is actually really far down on this list. There's only 18 organizations with Form 990s that talk about doing civic tech work. Um, compared to, um, I don't know, a, a, a thousand that are working on diversity, inclusion, and equity in the technology sector, or 1,500 almost that are working on digital privacy and security, and so on and so forth. Our next uh, main objective was to expand an understanding of the practitioner demographics um, in this ecosystem. So who, in these 40,000 nonprofits and all the other orgs that are doing this type of work, you know, who gets to do that work? Who's working there? Um, now, um, unfortunately, what we found for a number of reasons, so first of all, since this field is not so clearly defined and part of the outcome of this project is some field definition work, it was very difficult to get demographics. Um, in other words, how do you get demographics for a universe of organizations that you're in the process of defining? Um, it's hard. We tried to do it. Unfortunately, once we had identified this universe of organizations, um, almost none of them maintain and publicly share demographic data. Even the largest actors in the space, such as Code for America, up until very, very recently, were not uh, tracking or at least were not publicly sharing demographic data about who their employees are, who their volunteers are. The, fu the main funders in the space, none of them were tracking and sharing their demographic information either about their own employees or probably more importantly um, who they're funding. Um, so basically we found a real absence of demographic data across the ecosystem. 
And I'm happy to share that one of the, um, one of the outcomes of this research that's already um, happened is that Code for America, when they saw the early version of the report, because they, they, were, um, they were sort of a, a project advisor, so they were present throughout the, the, the unrolling um, of the project over the last couple of years, when they realized that this was one of the key things that needed to happen, that they themselves weren't doing this, they have actually now uh, just recently released their demographic data on their own employees, and they're starting to gather more data and share it um, across all of the Code for America brigades um, because they have a sort of federated structure. So they're one of the biggest actors in this space, and we think that it's really exciting that partly based on this research process, they have already committed to do that, and they've, they're already doing that. Um, so for groups, that have the capacity to measure their demographics. They typically haven't been doing it. They haven't been sharing the data. Um, and so what we can say is we don't, have, um, we don't have good quantitative data, but we have a lot of findings from the conversations we had with people, from the, the, the interviews, and from the focus groups. And what a lot of practitioners say is that this ecosystem of people working on um, tech for social justice, uh, for public interest, and so on and so forth, it's more diverse than the broader tech sector, um, but it still needs to be far more diverse and inclusive. Um, now here I'm just gonna share a couple slides about the demographics of our study participants. So I wanna emphasize, I should emphasize this five times. This is not the field. This is the people who are participated in our study, right? So of the people who, um, who we, interviewed and who participated in our focus groups, of those who filled out demographic information, which in this case was 119 people, um, half of them identified as technologists, 40% as community organizers, and so on and so forth down the line. Of those 119 people, um, this is the race ethnicity composition. So half white, 20% Asian, 70% black or African American, and down the line. And this was what it looked like in terms of gender identity. Um, I'm going to pause here just to say that my usual um, style of giving talks, uh, I don't like to read, actually. I usually do more just kind of like talking about the work. Um, but I'm reading today partly because um, I just have a really, really high stress level because of the Trump administration's announcement that they would like to uh, legally erase trans people. Um, so I've spent the last few days, instead of working more to um, prepare this talk, um, working on, um, on that, on being with my community, on talking with younger people who are really freaked out about the situation, and on lobbying various people um, inside the M MIT administration to make more um, public declarations uh, of support for trans uh, for trans folks, regardless of what this administration does. And I'm happy to say that the um, Joy Ito from the Media Lab just this morning um, published a statement um, basically reiterating the Media Lab's commitment to defend trans folks um, um, regardless of what the administration's uh, doing. So, and, and parentheses. That's why my, my usual lighthearted, jokey style is a little bit more, I'm a little more solemn and I'm just like reading some stuff from today, but that's why that's going on. Um, so our third goal was to develop and share a knowledge of practitioner experiences. So this was things like we wanted to know what were people's career paths? How did they get into this work? What were the types of barriers that they faced? 
And what were the most important types of support that people said, you know, this is what really helped me build a career um, as a person using my tech skills for social good or linking my community organizing skills with technology practices. And so what we found is that there's no standard pathway into careers in this ecosystem. There's a lot of self-taught techies who play important roles across government, nonprofit, and movement tech work. Um, and that there are many different roles that are necessary for the successful integration of technology in social change work. And most crucially, a lot of practitioners emphasized for us that tech projects always need to include and be led by people who have lived experience of the issue areas that the projects are supposed to address. And we'll keep coming back to that over the course of um, this presentation and in our recommendations as well. Um, in terms of what people said was really useful to them as they moved through this space, 60% um, of them said that it was a supportive individual. You know, some, somebody at some point in time took me under their wing. 40% um, of them said that conferences were really important as spaces to learn about, you know, how could I apply my tech skills for, for social good. Um, and things like fellowships and internships were also important to people. We also did find that a small but growing number of formal educational programs are available to train people for careers um, in the space. And we, as I said, we, we gathered a um, spreadsheet of educational resources um, if people are interested in um, you know, formal training on how to do tech for good work, tech for social justice work. Uh, in terms of barriers, 50% of our participants mentioned structural, institutional, and interpersonal barriers to their pathway through this ecosystem. So participants described, um, well, a third of participants described racism as a barrier, a third described sexism as a barrier, 10% talked about transphobia, a few talked about ageism, both against older practitioners in the tech industry, in the, in the private sector, um, and also against younger people in civil service. Um, people talked about classism, homophobia, um, in general, discrimination based on race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, disability, and their intersections led to practitioners feeling unsafe. It led to them um, feeling like they couldn't continue working in their organizations or within this broader ecosystem. Um, people would leave and go do other types of work um, because that had happened. Um, and so it's a, it's a real challenge uh, in the space. And perhaps that shouldn't be surprising, but again, remember, we're not talking about the broader tech sector here. We already know that there's this big conversation about um, you know, uh, sexism and racism in Silicon Valley uh, in, the big, in the largest tech firms. But this is, this is um, within organizations that say that they're working on tech for social justice and tech for good and tech for the public interest. So there's a lot, a lot of room, a lot of a distance to go for these organizations to basically walk their talk um, is, what, is what we came up with. But we didn't want to just focus on barriers and challenges. We also wanted to capture practitioners' visions of what did they, what did they feel like uh, needed to happen to build this field in, in a way that would be healthy, that would be aligned with their values, um, and that would make it a more inclusive space. So a lot of practitioners talked about the need to be guided by values. Um, a lot of them are guided by values and principles of justice and equity, and feel like it's important to put that front and center, um, both in the organizational missions as well as in the, um, 
again, sort of walking the talk uh, within organizations, not just as an outward-facing goal, like, yeah, we're going to use tech to solve these problems for these communities, but what, how are we going to actually create an inclusive space, um, in inclusive workspace? Um, a lot of people talked about the need to center community expertise and community needs in tech development and implementation. People said we have to move away from a solutionist approach or a belief in silver bullets um, and the sort of parachute approach, as in a brilliant technologist parachutes into a community somewhere to implement a technology solution. And that those things, not only are they sort of unhealthy and potentially harmful, but they just don't work. They just fail. Um, so we have to move away from those types of approaches. And instead, a lot of practitioners shared examples of how tech work um, that is really rooted in community needs and is led by people with lived experience of the issue area um, can be much more successful. And occasionally people shared um, examples of how tech work that's generally framed as for good uh, can actually be harmful. And I'll give you one example. Um, so one, one person we interviewed talked about an open data project in a city on the East Coast where some well-meaning open data for good practitioners um, said, well, how do, we how do we help with housing crises? We want to identify um, bad landlords. So landlords that are evicting a lot of people with no-fault evictions. And so they went to the court record system and they scraped the court records and they built a database of all the eviction proceedings and then they published that online with some really nicely documented APIs and they said, hey, isn't this great? Like we created this database of evictions so now we can search through the database and we can identify who are the landlords that are, um, you know, that are doing no-fault eviction processes most frequently and then housing rights activ activists could target them. Well, unfortunately, what ended up happening um, is that landlords found the database and used it to um, build a blacklist of tenants who had been involved, who had, who had brought their eviction um, notices to court. Um, because usually what happens is people get served eviction notices, they don't take the case to court, they just leave. Um, and so people who take the case to court um, are potentially you know, additionally problematic for landlords. And so this really well-meaning um, open data for good at the city level uh, project ended up harming specifically the people that it meant to help. They didn't redact the parents, right? Hmm? They did not because they were well-meaning technologists who had no knowledge or experience or connections to housing rights activists. They just thought that they could parachute in and do a thing. Um, so that, that happens all the time, unfortunately. Um, in terms of threats, so this was very interesting. So we asked people about threats to the field and what people responded with was really threats to their communities. And this was actually really, really sort of telling. So I think that the sort of, um, the, the professionalized lens um, of some people in the space, which is kind of about, um, you know, well, we want you to tell us about what the threats are to growing the tech for social justice space. Um, really what people responded with is, well, this is what I'm dealing with. This is, this is the biggest threat. This is what keeps me up at night. And so people talked about state violence and surveillance. They talked about politically mo motivated targeted digital attacks against especially the most marginalized communities um, based on race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, disability, and so on. They talked about unequal access to digital technology, um, corporate infrastructure that's unaccountable to the communities that it operates in, um, and a lack of resources. Yeah? Would you say that they're violent to the primary people? Um, 
So this was built by um, a long list of threats, which we then bucketed. Um, and these are then ranked within those buckets. Yeah, so, so that, was, that was the biggest one. State violence and surveillance was um, the thing that uh, participants in this study said they were most worried about uh, in terms of impacts on their, well, in, in terms of what, what keeps them from being able to build the tech for justice space in a way that they'd like to see happen. And we also wanted to document and distinguish models and approaches to carrying out these projects uh, in ways that really work and ways that don't work. And so in short, what we found uh, is that community-led design is the most successful model according to participants from all sectors. So this was, what was interesting to us in this finding is this, we knew that would be the case from people who already say, well, I do, I do social movement technology. But this was people from across all these spaces. So people working in government, in for-profit uh, companies, in nonprofits, in social movement organizations, they all said this. They all said, you have to have people with lived experience of the issue area that you think you're designing for on your design team from the earliest stages all the way through, and that's what works best. Um, they didn't all frame it through the lens of community control or social justice, but regardless, in other words, regardless of which of those 252 terms they were using to talk about how they do this work, they, for the most part, this was the, this was the thing that people had the most agreement on, is you've got to have um, people with lived experience in the design process um, or these Tech for Good projects won't work. Um, people talked about cross-sector partnerships and relationships being uh, really, really important. Um, they talked about resilient solutions being better than cool new tech. So for example, practitioners would say, um, there's a lot of need to maintain upgrade and continually improve existing solutions, but instead a lot of the resources, attention, and energy go to building new apps. Uh, and they see that as a really big problem in the space. Um, a couple other interesting findings from here. I can't do them all, but um, parachuting rarely works. We talked about that already. Um, ICT infrastructure projects can be really important ways to leverage public funding to build community technology capacity. And that was interesting because we heard stories from uh, Philadelphia, from Detroit, um, from New York City. Those are all cities where uh, broadband technology opportunity program funds, which was the broadband access um, $8 billion line in the, um, in the stimulus bill under the Obama administration, the ARRA. Um, those were all cities where community organizers basically worked with city officials to write proposals to get access to the broadband technology funds um, and use them to build uh, community technology capacity. So in Detroit, um, those funds were used to um, build out the um, uh, Digital Stewards Project where Detroit residents are learning how to build and maintain community wireless networks. Um, in Philadelphia, Media Mobilizing Project uh, worked with the city of Philly to build out um, community technology centers that were staffed by community organizers who helped both um, increase access to broadband and build digital literacy and also link people um, and technology skills to community organizing efforts, so on and so forth. So that, that uh, leveraging of infrastructure projects for community organizing processes can be a really valuable thing to do. Um, let's see. I want to give a couple, a, a couple quick examples of um, some concrete success stories that we heard. 
So we asked people, what does success look like in this space? And we got such a wide range uh, of answers. So there's no one particular type of outcome that is a good tech for social justice or public interest tech program. So people shared stories of uh, passing surveillance oversight ordinances at the city level, creating a trans-inclusive workplace, convincing a city department to open its data, um, crowdsourcing aerial damage assessments to reduce wait times for FEMA aid, demonstrating that uh, the impacts of eviction to state policymakers, using disaster recovery funds to catalyze new technologies and innovative small businesses, linking federal ICT infrastructure grants to community organizing, creating a POC and women-led makerspace, and so on and so forth. So there were a lot of really wonderful success stories, which again, you can browse in the full, uh, in the full report. So what I want to do now, and do we, do we usually end this after an hour or an hour and a half? It varies. Okay, well, well, we'll do this really quickly. So what I want you to do is just turn to your neighbor um, and go to this URL. Yeah. And take, take five minutes and browse through some of these quotes from our practitioners and, f and find one that you like. What, what you'll see on this page is headlines, and you click on them, and they expand into the full paragraph length quote. Yeah. <laughs> Just click around and find one you like. the murmuring is dying down. So um, as you, you know, there's, there's hundreds of these quotes in there. Maybe uh, pick one now. So take the next minute and, and, and pick, settle on one. Okay, so raise your hand if you can hear me. Raise your hand if you can hear me. Just raise your hands. Just raise your hand if you can hear me. That's supposed to make you quiet. Okay, okay. thank you. Okay, so we don't have time for everyone to kind of share back, um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a sense of um, a little bit more of the texture of what uh, the types of things people were saying. And so maybe just um, maybe one or two people uh, could share back the quote that you chose and why. So just raise your hand if you, if you feel really excited about the quote that you found. You want to share it back. Phoebe. Yes. Uh, well, this is timely because we're at MIT. Uh, we were just reading, tech practitioners need to use access to elite spaces to open them and to share knowledge and power. And the quote is, quote, I think a lot of tech practitioners who have skills and access to elite spaces need to use that position of power and knowledge to teach other people and also to make those spaces accessible to more. Um, one thing, when I got into an elite university, my grandmother called me and said, you are now entering another type of space that you need to be the conduit for anybody in our family or in our community to be able to access that space. You were the gateway of that. Oh, thank you. And also, Pat? Uh, it says, financial barriers limit individual opportunities. <coughs> money, not having the money. Boot camps cost a lot of money. Even when they don't cost money, you still have to pay rent. You still have to eat. <laughs> 
those things hold people back. And I think that really financial barriers are some of the biggest barriers myself and people in my community have faced and are facing when it comes to this kind of work. And what resonated uh, for you about that quote? Just like, uh, I feel like a lot of times when, when people, when we're planning things, like you, there'll be conferences and like, even if you get money, they'll reimburse you. And then I'm like, but I need to pay rent and eat. Like, why are you assuming there's money in my account to do this thing when you're, t especially if it's something focused on like lower income communities, don't assume that they have the money for free. Thank you, I, absolutely. Um, maybe one more. Can you shout from the back? <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. Cool. So it's titled Social Justice and Internet Funding is US Eurocentric. In general, I think a lot of the funding around social justice, tech, and internet freedom are very, very much US and Europe centric. A lot of the people that are trying to do this work and that are not in the US absolutely cannot get access to funding. Middle Eastern organizations that work with queer rights, migrant rights, gender rights, that does a lot of technology, media justice, and social justice work, struggle to get funding because of the nature of the organization and the fact that they're based in the Middle East. They don't have any staff members in the US, and therefore it's impossible for them to get funding. Even if they come to the US and meet with funders, they will just not get funding because they're not based here. I think there's a huge imbalance. One of the reasons why I'm based here and not in the Middle East is because I know that me being in the Middle East, I won't have the same access to opportunities in terms of funding. Thank you. So thanks everyone who shared this back, and sorry if you didn't get a chance to read yours. Um, so, uh, well, we just did that. Okay. So, um, and actually, I wanted to do that because this this is sort of a little bit like. Um, the process that we went through uh, as we were doing this. So, for example, after the first round of interviews, when we had interviewed 20 people, we, we pulled out the transcripts, we pulled out uh, a lot of sort of key quotes, we analyzed the transcripts using uh, Deduce, which is a, a qualitative analysis uh, tool that you can have a whole team of coders, and we did have a whole team of coders. Um, actually, I, I mentioned all the organizations at the beginning, but I didn't really give the proper um, shout outs to all the people who were involved in producing this work and in writing this report and pulling it together. So I really want to emphasize, you know, this, this report um, um, was co-authored by uh, Maya Wagoner, who was a CMS, um, you know, uh, master's uh, student, so she worked on this a lot. Um, Chris Schweidler, um, Carolyn Rivas, uh, Bex Hurwitz, um, Berhan uh, Tay, uh, Georgia Bullen, there were uh, a lot of people who worked on this report. And part of the process was, again, people from all those partner organizations that I showed at the beginning gathering together physically. And we did several a series of convenings over, over the two-year frame of the research um, to look at the transcripts and at the poll quotes together, the stuff that people had coded and polled as really interesting, powerful quotes, like the ones you just read. We would look at them together and use that to develop these uh, high-level categories of like, well, we, we have 100 quotes and they're all kind of talking about this thing. And that's how we produced uh, the sort of key findings and that's how we produced the key recommendations which I'm about to share with you. So again, just to give you a little bit of that flavor of what that research process is like. So imagine what we just did except for it's a weekend long retreat with a bunch of um, practitioners who've been in the field working on tech for social justice for years, looking together at what we found uh, in the interviews and in the focus groups and using that to come up with these higher level categories and to come up with these recs. Um, 
So we gathered hundreds of recommendations and we synthesized them into five top-level recs. In the full report, we have targeted recommendations for different types of audiences, including um, funders, tech practitioners, educators, um, people in, um, in government, and so on and so forth. But basically, the high le highest level stuff is these five points. Um, and then I'll, I'll end after that and we'll discuss further. Um, so first of all, again, nothing about us without us. This is a slogan from the disability justice movement, right? Um, and the idea is that we need to adopt co-design methods and concrete community accountability mechanisms across the ecosystem. Uh, tech project design must involve people from the communities the projects are meant to serve early on throughout the design process. And ideally, those communities will play some role in the ownership and governance um, of the project um, after its launch as well. Uh, that doesn't happen that often, but that's, that's uh, really, really important to a lot of the practitioners that we talk to. The second top-level recommendation is this one. Um, we found that there's no singular field that contains everyone who's working with tech for social justice, the public interest, or the common good. Instead, there's a complex ecosystem. And that terminology and framing matter, as does the narrative about what this work is even about. Language choices are political, right? And typically, by using one type of frame, you're going to attract some people but alienate others. And so again, the type of report that we were doing, we were not arguing. We're not saying everybody needs to, um, you know, in this report, we don't say everyone should abandon uh, tech for good frames and civic tech frames and everybody must adopt a design justice framework where if you're not doing design work that's community-led and is explicit about challenging um, Patricia Hill Collins' matrix of domination of intersecting white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, capitalism, and settler colonialism, then you know, you're a terrible person. Although, you know, <laughs> but, but what we did say is that you need to intentionally make a decision about what type of language you're using in these projects. Because if you think that by saying I'm, it's a public interest tech project, you're going to include everybody who might be involved in this space, you're wrong. Similarly, if you use the type of language I just used, you're going to alienate other people. You're going to alienate some people in government. You're going to alienate some people in the nonprofit sector, and so on and so forth. And so what we're saying in this report is not advocating um, for a particular frame over another. We're saying you need to be clear and intentional about uh, the language that you use, the values that your project represents. And if you don't do that, then you're going to unknowingly exclude lots of people um, who've been working in this space, um, who won't want to work with you, who, um, if it's in your job position announcements, right, they won't, they won't feel like it speaks to them. You're going to be missing out, basically. So that's, that's that recommendation, is be intentional. Um, the third top-level finding, it's hashtag real diversity numbers. This was a hashtag that circulated a little while uh, ago, a couple years ago, um, about um, basically releasing uh, demographic information inside firms, especially the tech sector, but it applies across all sectors, right? And so the thing is that racism, sexism, classism, ableism, transphobia, and other forms of intersecting oppressions permeate the broader sec tech sector. We know that. And the ecosystem we looked at is not immune to that. And so all the actors in this space 
should be adopting evidence-based best practices to advance diversity and inclusion. And what all the literature says, including, I'm not talking social justice literature, I'm talking you know, management literature, like uh, you know, reports from, um, from the Harvard Business School, from Wharton, and so on and so forth. Um, if you want to make a diverse and inclusive workplace, one of the key things you have to do is publish your demographic numbers and set a public uh, target and a time frame for when you're going to, um, to shift. So if you want to reach gender parity in your organization, that means you publish your data about your gender uh, right now, and you say, With it, we want to reach gender parity within 10 years, or whatever your target is, um, and that that is the, one of the best um, known uh, evidence-based ways of uh, building inclusive workplaces. And unfortunately, most of the actors in this space haven't done that yet, and so that was a very simple recommendation that people should do that. And like I said, Code for America has now um, started to do that. Although they haven't set a public target yet, they have released their, their numbers. Our fourth top level finding is this one, developers, developers, developers. Um, tech work is not performed only or even primarily by software developers. Uh, um, across this whole ecosystem, we think that everyone should acknowledge the different roles that are necessary to effectively use technology for social justice, the common good, and the public interest in order to build a more inclusive ecosystem that offers opportunities to those who might otherwise be excluded by a narrow definition of technologist. Um, so that means we need to recognize that to have an effective tech for good project, um, you might need a software developer, you might need uh, a graphic designer, you might need a researcher, a community organizer, project manager, et cetera. All these roles should be recognized and made more visible. People should be hiring for them. Um, and people should um, recognize that alongside the generalized push towards um, you know, everyone on planet Earth must learn um, to become a software developer. Um, you know, it's not that we're, we're not arguing against the utility of learning how to code. We're just saying that if all we had was software developers in these projects, um, they'd all be failing all the time because we wouldn't have people playing the other crucial roles to make projects uh, work. Um, and we also found uh, that there are a lot of different types of organizations that do this work. It's not just nonprofit organizations, and it's not just the um, public agencies like um, the, the U.S. Digital Service at the federal level or the city-level agencies like the, um, the Boston Mayor's Office of, of, of um, Urban Innovation. Or is that what they're called? Mechanics. Sorry? Mechanics. Mechanics, thank you. Um, so these are great organizations. And we talk about them elsewhere, but also there's a lot of other types of, of orgs and networks. So for example, um, technology cooperatives and collectives provide key tech services and infrastructure to thousands of movement organizations um, and have been doing so since the earliest days of the internet. So this is groups like uh, Rise Up Collective, like, which ended up actually developing Signal, which is the same uh, protocol which has now been adopted by WhatsApp uh, and by others. Um, groups like May 1st, um, Technology Collective and, and others. So they've been there for a long time doing really crucial work but not being recognized as key actors in the space. Um, also informal networks often rapidly coalesce during moments of crisis and provide things like improved information flow, uh, they identify priority needs, they help organize volunteer software developers to most effectively use their time and energy and so on and so forth. So. Um, Again, informal networks, for example, in crisis response, are not often recognized as key actors in this space, um, but many of the people we talked to said that they are. 
Um, so these are all crucial but less visible forms of using tech work for social justice, and they should be recognized and better supported. And those are our key findings. That's an overview of the, of the work. So um, thank you, and now we can open it up for conversation. definitely we had a lot of stories of people who um, left the space or talked about how one of the barriers to doing this work was that as a person of color and or a woman or femme or someone occupying another uh, marginalized position that they would do a lot of work that would go unrecognized and that credit would be claimed um, by the organizational sort of leadership who tended by and large um, to be white to be cisgender um, uh, men and and that was a real that was a real thing that people talk about for sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for this talk. It was wonderful. Uh, did you so along the lines of that question? Were there organizations that had a less traditional um, non-hierarchical structure versus an organization that's more top down? And were if, if there were those differences? Were there differences in the amount of hidden labor or, um, or differently proportioned burdens of that labor? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, this key finding really got to that, which is that like a lot of the most um, successful work in the space isn't done by traditional organizations. Um, it's done by collectives. It's done by ad hoc networks. It's done by um, people who um, coalesce around a project and but they work in other you know spaces and um, so the first part of your question yes that's absolutely something that we included and tried to highlight uh, in the project findings in terms of comparing um, how frequently people's labor is appropriated and not recognized in that type of space versus in traditional organizations we didn't specifically ask that um, so that would be something where we'd have to go back into the data and look at the transcripts um, um, and try and you know, we, we'd have to look at that further um, to see to see how that compared. Yeah. So I I was wondering if um, you got to make any correlations between the uh, participants that didn't find uh, those uh, uh, roadblocks or um, you had a graph that was like fifty percent. You didn't use that word. I forgot what word was. Barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and the uh, organizations that were more or less diverse. Is there a correlation between less diverse participants finding less barriers or vice versa? Um, I can think of a couple ways to answer that. So one is um, um, in terms of the qualitative data, there were a number of people who shared their experience of working first in, okay, so for example, one person who works in a majority queer people of color technology cooperative shared that prior to doing that work, they were working for a professionalized uh, majority white nonprofit. Um, 
and they found a lot of barriers there. They felt like their work wasn't really respected or recognized. They felt like um, this person actually is a technologist and a software developer and a very talented one, but was given um, sort of a lot of busy work and so on in the nonprofit organization. Once they left and went to the majority POC worker co-op, they feel really valued and validated, and um, it's been a great like working space for them. And there were a number of stories that were like that. So certainly in the qualitative data, people uh, share that. The other thing I could say is that um, um, I don't ha I didn't show the breakdown there, but the um, when people were talking about the barriers they faced, yeah, the the people who talked about facing racism were black and people of color. The people who talked about facing transphobia were people who identified as trans or gender nonconforming. The people who talked about facing sexism as a barrier were mostly um, women or femme identified. So yeah. Um, there was another question here. Yes. Uh, you may have already answered this in your chilling anecdote about tenants who found a reputation for being litigious instead of like trying to earn dignity. Uh, but I was curious, since you had so many options in the survey, if you had any respondents who found some of the answers in conflict with each other, people who felt they couldn't choose technologist and open data and privacy because they felt that those were in conflict. And I wondered if you had any suggestions or thoughts about how you would change your study design if you were to repeat this or to have another team repeat this. Oh, sure. Um, so there was no survey. There was only uh, interviews and focus groups. Um, and the what people identified as was always um, you could tick as many as you wanted. Yeah, so there's no, so people could select I'm a technologist and a community organizer. Um, so, yeah, so what we're showing is sort of the most, the most popular, I could scroll back to it, but um, it's pretty far back. Um, so here, um, so again, this is um, of the study participants, 119 of them um, filled out a, um, a worksheet as part of either an interview or a focus group uh, participation where they talked about uh, the roles that they play, that they identify as. And um, so this is of the people who filled that worksheet out. Um, that's, that's why this adds up to more than 100. They could select as many they want. Does that answer the question? So we asked a lot about um, pathways to participation. Um, and again, we have, we have these 119 interviews. These are hour-long interviews. Um, the transcripts are you know, 20 to 40 pages long. Um, so we've got a lot of really amazing stories in there. And actually, one of the things that's, that's actually, this is not a, not a plant. Um, but so let me, let me now actually show you. Um, show you this other really cool thing that we did um, as, as a way to partially answer that question. Um, here, I'll pull that up. So one of the things we did is we, oh, why is that not working? One sec. 
here it is. Um, so we produced these practitioner profiles in addition to the other work that we did. And these are sort of um, journalistic style, um, really uh, nicely written, fun to read, a few pages long summaries of people's pathways into the work. So this is Noel Hidalgo, um, and he talks about, um, you know, why did he, you know, how did he get into this work? How did he become executive director of Beta NYC? Uh, and so on and so forth. And so we have a lot of stories um, that get at that question, what was your pathway to participation? And for a lot of people, um, it started with something, um, um, I, it, was, it was very diverse. Uh, so actually, so one of the findings is there's no one way into the work. Um, so it's not the case that a lot of people just, well, I went to this program for public interest tech and then I got a job in public interest tech. No, instead, um, a lot of people you know, shared everything from, um, you know, my PhD advisor gave a talk about how we could use open data to make the world a better place, and I was hooked. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to do. To um, you know, I uh, I spent years fixing computers in the basement of a dirty nonprofit with no resources, and I realized that there had to be you know a better a better way. And so I devoted my time and energy to gathering more um, resources to so that you know nonprofits and social justice orgs could have. Uh, better, uh, you know, tech infrastructure. To I personally faced, you know, some particular, um, you know, barrier accessing government services, and I knew that there had to be a better type of user interface for accessing, um, you know, uh, public benefits. And so I wanted to work on that. So basically, the short answer is there's no one pathway. Um, we gathered a lot of those stories, and you can browse them in the quotes. Actually, there's a pathways sort of category. And then I highly recommend these practitioner profiles. They're really great, um, compelling. They're, they're not too long a read, but they're longer than just a little paragraph. So they give you a real sense of this person's journey uh, into this work. Jim. Uh, I'm curious if you got any sense uh, through this study of the history of this, uh, this form of uh, these practices. Uh, um, is there indication that it's growing, it's a growing realm, or is there indication that it was uh, smaller, say, I don't know, in the 80s? So I'm trying to understand the phenomenon a little better historically. Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I would say less from this study, but more just from you know the, the work that I do and, and my knowledge of the space. Um, although, that said, like a number of people who've been in the study, who've been working in it for a long time, you know, shared some of those, you know, the, the, the dawn of the internet for good, you know, stuff that they were involved in back in the day, and that was really interesting to read. Um, I would say as long as the internet has been around, uh, there have been people interested in how do we use this um, for social justice specifically uh, and for the public interest more broadly uh, and so on and so forth. So you had like, um, you had the circuit riders uh, back in the 1990s, so this was sort of like a transnational network of uh, technologists who saw the potential of internet access for human rights organizations and traveled around the world connecting um, NGOs at that time. Um, the Association for Progressive Communications is one of the most important um, worldwide networks that was involved in that work even from the 1980s uh, forward. Uh, it was APC who played the key linking role between uh, La Neta, which was the organization in Mexico that um, basically sort of tr 
took the um, communiques that were coming from Subcomandante Marcos in the Lacandon jungle, put them onto um, you know, listservs and circulated them globally and that helped bring, that's sort of one of the most widely cited moments um, of the, the early days of the net of people understanding that this could be um, a tool that would be used to protect vulnerable communities from state repression. So that was a case where the Zapatista movement, you know, the Mexican state would have liked to just send in the military and you know, probably disappear them, but instead because of the international visibility they had from these early um, technologist practitioners who were linking indigenous movement organizations to um, onto the net, um, you know, they, they sort of played that role and, and the state had to respond with less force. Um, so there's like a lot of sort of prehistory of how people and organizations who were interested in using the net for social good uh, have over time, you know, played a re played really important roles. I think more recently there's a lot of interest, partly because, uh, you know, funders have decided to put a new round of resources into this. And again, that's with all the complicated dynamics that that brings, like the one quote that was read from the back where will all those resources get concentrated in, um, in the United States, um, even though this is obviously, uh, there's global potential and possibility and a lot of amazing actors who, who are not here. Um, there's a wonderful book about uh, grassroots innovation movements. Um, that I'm forgetting the, the authors right now, but it's, it's a, um, it came out two years ago, I wanna say, and it sort of summarizes the history of five different sort of people, science, and technology movements, um, looking at movements in India, in Brazil, and across Latin America. Um, looking, it also looks at the early days of the uh, makerspace movement. Um, there's wonderful work about hacker spaces and hack labs and how these sort of spaces that were initially linked to um, anarchist and global justice movement networks um, formed a global sort of circuit of physical spaces where people developed new technologies that became really crucial to what would later become uh, social media and would later become uh, sort of the, the type of web that we know now um, prior to the incorporation of hack labs into neoliberal uh, visions of innovation cities. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of history, um, but uh, uh, that was only sort of tangential in this report in as far as the practitioners told us about their own personal trajectories through those types of spaces. Rekha? Yeah, so in terms of there's such an explosion of coding camps, hmm. and when you scrape the mission statements of those nonprofits, like was the, where, where, how many coding camps per se? Just because there's, I find people, you know, they're just, they when I first started like noticing them, some of them were just um, creating like an HR pipeline for mm -hmm. corporate companies, and they weren't really investing in long-term initiatives, and um, some of them become quite famous and all that stuff. So I'm just curious about, <coughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is a great question. I'm, I'm trying to see if I have, if I can easily access this. Um, eh. It'll take me too much time to find it. But there's, there's a spreadsheet of all of the educational organizations and there's a tab for boot camps. Um, so I don't know off the top of my head the number of them. So just the quality 
But yes, the vast majority of them are not social justice technology boot camps. They're just boot camps. Um, what we did was we tried to identify of all of the boot camps that are out there, which, which are the ones that are using some of these terms that our practitioners identified in their missions. Um, which again, we did not take the time to go and sort of individually evaluate each of those supposedly tech for good boot camps um, to, to really dive into uh, that question further. And that would be a great project. We should, we should definitely do that. Um, it was, but it was one of our recommendations uh, in, it's sort of a sub-bullet recommendation when we talk about educational spaces. So if you, if you go into the report, you can search recs by audience. And there's one for educators. And we have some bullet points specifically for coding boot camps, which is to say, um, we think that we need more coding boot camps that explicitly have a social justice mission. Um, and that think about how to teach more than just coding in the abstract, but think about how do you teach this process that we're talking about, which is how do you do coding that will support uh, a community or someone from, with lived experience of the issue that you think you're trying to be coding on um, to work with you to, uh, to scope the problem area, to develop the technology, or maybe you don't need to develop a new technology at all. What you need to do is identify the best working technology uh, and integrate that into uh, the community organizing efforts or whatever the case may be. So absolutely, that's something that there needs to be a lot more of, and it's one of our recommendations. And so we're hoping that some of the funders in this space will, um, will listen to the recommendations and will um, start uh, resourcing and supporting more coding boot camps that have an explicit social justice mission. people are quite aware of that and that's why one of the top uh, six key threats was the unaccountable corporate infrastructure piece and people certainly talked about the importance of organizing in and educating their communities about the relationships between um, corporate data providers social media companies and so on and so forth uh, and and state violence um, in terms of the first part of the question about to what degree is this a response to the Trump administration I mean on the one hand yes absolutely um, the overt, explicit, and public proud uh, violence of the Trump administration has certainly made things worse for a lot of communities. And so people feel increasingly threatened and under attack. At the same time, most of the people we talked to have been in this space for many, many years. And they're certainly not, um, like they were working on this stuff. And this was some of their fears and, and threats to their communities prior to the Trump administration. So for example, immigrant rights organizations um, you know, under the Obama administration faced a, um, 
administration that publicly presented itself as being quite you know, pro-immigrant while uh, it was forcing 287G data peering uh, agreements between local police and ICE all across the United States, um, was further militarizing the border, was deporting more people than had ever been deported uh, before, s several hundred thousand per year, um, and uh, was modernizing the technology infrastructure of the detention and deportation machinery. Um, and these are organizations and people who have been working on that stuff for a while. So for sure it's not, it's not like a new, a new thing, but there does, people do feel an escalation for sure. Yeah. Saul? Um, again, not a plant. Um, <laughs> um, this doesn't directly answer your question, so it's a little bit of a cheat. But um, I, I'll answer, first I'll answer with some of the qualitative data. So one of the things that people talked about a lot was how um, many practitioners feel like it's actually much easier to take someone who's been a community organizer um, and teach them the technology skills that are necessary to implement these types of projects than it is to take someone whose primary identity has been as a software developer and teach them how to do community organizing. Um, and that was one of the interesting findings uh, you know, from, from the study. Um, so that would suggest a whole bunch of things about how people should build these, these project teams. Uh, right? Unfortunately, I don't think that's how most of them get built, but that, is, that was one of our findings. Um, another thing we, we did in terms of thinking about pipelines, because that was one of the mandates of this you know, research, was to you know, figure out, well, how do you get a job in this space? What, is it ev what does it even look like? Um, so we did build a job board. And again, um, so this job board leverages the 252 terms that people use to talk about the work that they're doing. And we use that to then scrape. Um, this is just idealist, although I think there's another version of this that scrapes other um, job boards, where you can then um, you know, you can pick one of these, um, one of these uh, buckets of that we created from all the terms, right? And it'll search on all the terms that were in that bucket, and it'll find jobs that are related to that. So if we're looking for digital privacy and security jobs, um, whoops, or diversity, inclusion, and equity jobs, and this is the, these are the search strings. You can't see them from back there, but um, this will show you what the actual strings are. And then it'll pull up all the jobs that are, that are, um, that are relevant to that. So you could be the head of people and culture digital strategy at the World Economic Forum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you could be the director of learning strategies for philanthropy Northwest. Um, or the associate vice president of inclusive diversity and equity or the CDO of St. Mary's College and so on and so forth. Um, and again, we thought that this was, um, this was actually a pretty cool outcome that was not, we didn't go into this thinking that we would build this, but through the PAR process, um, we managed to move away from this idea of like, um, how can I put this? At the beginning of the project, a bunch of people said, well, what we should do is create ideal positions for public interest technologists, and we'll write these ideal job descriptions, and we'll circulate those to organizations. And that would have been a sort of top-down way of using this one particular frame to generate 
um, a set of possible job descriptions that you know, orgs would then use to, to do hiring. And instead, we flipped it, and we did through this, you know, this distributed process, this bottom-up process, we identified all these terms, and we created this job board in the other direction to say, well, if what you're most interested in is jobs in community technology, here's a bunch of you know, jobs that are open in that particular type of space. So again, trying to do sort of demo design of what it means to, um, to put into practice uh, some of the recommendations and some of the findings, even in the, in the pipeline um, type of space. So I think maybe I have time for one more question, and then we'll, we'll close it out. Ed. Uh, you, you used the word we. There's a big we here, from what I can tell. 25 different people on the research team. I think you said nine authors at one point. Uh, how, you know, when you have a group that large, it's actually amazing you got a really good study done. How did you do that? Or how did the collective you accomplish that. I mean from a very pragmatic organizational standpoint. Yeah. Um, decades of experience of doing participatory action research projects and of knowing all the steps in that, you know, that type of process. You know, I mean it starts with, um, it started with uh, um, the core coordination team identifies a bunch of practitioner organizations that will, that we think will be potentially good partners in the power process based on a set of criteria that we developed together early on. So what we, was that sort of core team? There's a, yeah, there's a core team at the beginning. Um, uh, there ha has to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, so we said, well, we, we know we want someone who works in a, in a worker cooperative to be part of this team. We know we need someone who works in government. We know we need, and so on. So basically figuring out and juggling all these different, you know, our sense based on the fact that we work in this space and have for many years, of the different types of actors that are in the space. And we want, at the table, a pretty diverse representation um, to help us move to, to, stage, uh, to stage two. So then what we do is we convene all those. So we do, we do outreach, and we figure out who can be involved in it. And they're all getting paid, right? So the grant is getting divided up among all of the research partners. So we're not just saying, hey, come spend two years working on this thing with us. We're, we have line items for community partners in participatory research projects. That's what you have to do if you want to run this type of process. Um, so this, you know, this project is a couple hundred thousand dollar project. It's funded by NetGain. Um, a big chunk of that goes to the community partners to be part of the process over the two-year you know, span. Um, so we gather everyone together. We talk about the general, um, you know, what it is that we're trying to do in a general sense. From there, we say, um, what types of methods do we want to apply? What are some of the research questions we might want to pull together? Um, that's a, that was a convening that happened in Chicago, actually. So um, people from all those partner organizations get together for a weekend-long, basically, retreat where we define our research questions and methods together, start to develop some of the uh, semi-structured interview um, guidelines, that type of stuff. Then we do one round of interviews um, with about 20 practitioners. And that's to, well, first we validated the semi-structured interview guideline with like one or two interviews, revise it a little bit, then do a round of 20. Um, transcribe those and gather together um, several months later to look at the transcripts. And based on that, we say, well, here are some of the larger areas that we think are going to emerge. And that, that then, we use that to guide the further elaboration of the research questions and the next round of instruments that included a new interview guide and a, um, and a focus group guide. Um, that's what we use to then conduct the majority of the research. So 
those, those are the in research instruments we're using to then go and interview the next 100 people and run the next 10 focus groups. Um, we transcribe all of that, gather again at another convening in, um, in New York City, um, and spend another weekend together. Um, and again, in, in between, there's tons of data cleaning, and there's pulling. There's reading all the transcripts to pull the most powerful quotes, because you've got 40 pages, and you're not going to all be able to read all 40 pages of all 100 interviews. So you're pulling out some of the most powerful stuff, as identified by a bunch of people on the team who um, are acting as coders of that, of that work, again, using the software deduce. Um, and then developing the uh, top level findings and key recommendations together based on that. There's also a couple rounds where we, we brought our preliminary findings to a Code for America Summit and also to the Allied Media Conference and also to another conference space. And we ran semi-public workshops where um, we presented preliminary findings and got a lot of feedback from practitioners in the field um, who are not included in that 188 people. So there were other rounds of feedback from the broader community um, about, does this make sense? Is the, are our findings resonating with you? Do these recommendations sound like we're on the right track? And so we're synthesizing all that information. Um, and that's what, that's what goes into producing this type of thing. So if you want to do this type of work, I, I highly recommend it. It's really, really rewarding. I believe that it generates really powerful, grounded theory as well as um, particular pragmatic you know, recommendations um, that are actionable by different types of actors in the space. Um, and I encourage you to take my collaborative design studio class in the spring um, where we work together on learning how to do this type, of, uh, this type of design practice and this type of research practice. So thank you so much uh, for coming. And are there snacks? There are snacks. There are snacks. <laughs>